Set off on a world tour that's just steps away. World Showcase. Sun shining bright above you. Hi, I'm Ken with a Disney MGM Studios tip. It's best to see the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, Voyage of the Little Mermaid, and Star Tours early in the day. W Radio. Your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 28 for the week of August 19th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again. I have just a few items to cover in the news and views from Walt Disney World segment before we take a quick visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill. Join me and Disney artist Jason Zucker as we visit a true hidden treasure of Walt Disney World. Then Eric Hollister announces the winner of this week's Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge Contest and gives you the clues to the next challenge, with the help of Mike Scopa, who also provides some marathon training advice. We'll conduct another DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, as Jeff Pepper and I take a look at the Echo Lake area of the Disney MGM Studios, and we discuss the real reasons why the Sorcerer's Hat won't be going anywhere soon. I'll also answer a number of your emails and play some of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. WDW Radio Show News and Views Report Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey Not a whole lot of news coming out of the Walt Disney World Resort this week but there were a couple of things of note that I did want to mention First, Disney's Caribbean and Pop Century Resorts have initiated a new test program over at Typhoon Lagoon From August 4th through September 8th, and these are tentative dates, Typhoon Lagoon is testing out a new children's activity program for kids 3 to 9. This is going to include lunch and activities like volleyball, water balloon games, limbo, a pirate treasure hunt, dance parties, and more. These are going to go on every day from 10 to 2 p.m. with up to 40 kids split into two age groups, 3 to 5 years old and 6 to 9 years old. And they are going to be supervised and run by Ellis-trained lifeguards at a ratio of about one guard per every five kids. You should note, if you are going to get looking to have your younger kids participate, they must be potty trained in order to participate in the uh, the program. Now, if you are interested, you can register through the guest services desk at either Caribbean Beach or Pop Century Resorts, with spots being available on a first-come, first-served basis over at Typhoon Lagoon. Most importantly, this test program, as of now, is free and is going to be included with your regular uh, water park admission. Now, it's not known right now whether or not after the test program is over, if it's successful, if this will be uh, an add-on. But as of now, like I said, up until approximately September 8th, this program will be free over at Typhoon Lagoon. I'm being told that Spectral Magic's parade has a minor change that showed up earlier this week as the glowing faces of the trumpeters on one of the floats have been replaced with new masks, and actually not masks at all, as it appears as though they're actually just using face paint instead of these actual glowing masks on top of their heads. Now, I'm not sure as to whether or not this is a permanent change or this is something that they are just testing, but they do seem to kind of remind me of uh, almost like white Mardi Gras style 
uh, designs on them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link in this week's show notes page uh, over to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com forums where somebody did post a picture of it and there is a discussion going on. So if you haven't seen the pictures and want to get an idea of what they look like, or if you have seen them and want to discuss what you uh, what you think about the new look, by all means, head on over to the forums and uh, weigh in on that. And Disney's Virtual Magic Kingdom has confirmed the rumor that VMK Central will be closing at the Main Street Cinema in the Magic Kingdom on September 30th, 2007. VMK said in release that, quote, The game, very much like our theme parks, is always changing. We've always tried to experiment with unique ways of doing things like in-park questing, and we'll continue to do that. For example, we'll still be doing cool stuff in the parks like merchandise cards and the Finding Nemo Submarine Voyage quest. But those things just won't revolve around VMK Central, end quote. Now, it's unclear at this time as to whether or not VMK is going to close permanently or if it may reopen possibly in another location in the Magic Kingdom or elsewhere on property. We'll have to keep an eye on this. Uh, and if anybody's a VMK player has any more information as this comes out, by all means, please feel free to let me know. And finally, just something that I thought was interesting that was uh, sent out to cast members earlier this week is that... Uh, from August 26th through September 29th, 2007, cast members are being asked not to eat in the dining locations during dinner time in their table service restaurants. They're actually blocking out the cast member discounts as well as their, as well as their larger holidays discounted tickets during this time, specifically because of the popularity of the Disney dining plan. So Disney is obviously uh, taking note and recognizing the fact that many of the restaurants are becoming crowded. Sometimes it may be difficult to get reservations. They're politely asking their ca- their cast members not to eat in those locations during that time, so it can hopefully free up some space for the guests, which I think is a, is a great move on Disney's part, and unfortunately um, not great for the cast members, but it is nice the fact that they are recognizing what the popularity of the Disney dining plan is bringing um, to, to the restaurant. So, again, not a lot of news this week. That's going to do it. Of course, if you have any news that you want to report, anything that you want to weigh in, by all, by all means, please send it to me at lou at wdwradio.com. And just a quick reminder, if you are going to be in Walt Disney World on August 25th, I will be down at the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney for a book signing and discussion from 6 to 8 p.m. That's located right across the way from Wolfgang Puck's and Bongo's Cuban Cafe. There's no Pleasure Island admission required. If you have a book already, that's okay. I'd love for you to come down. If you're in the area, please come on over and say hi. Remember, that's at the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney. It's on the west side. That's Saturday, August 25th. Again, that's from 6 to 8 p.m. If you have any questions, you can shoot me on an email. Otherwise, hope to see you there. And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. Just a couple of very quick things to touch on in this week's visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill. First, it appears as though some more details may be coming out about the Haunted Mansion, including some pictures that have appeared on pins of what the staircase may look like, as well as the new portrait hallway. It looks as though the staircase will have effects on the left and right side, including multiple staircases as well as floating candelabras. And the new portrait hallway will have some new effects, included uh, lightning in windows on the left-hand side, if you remember... Most of the portraits you faced, you could see on the left-hand, right-hand side. Now it sounds like some of these may be removed on the left-hand side, replaced with windows with some sort of lightning effects. Uh, gargoyles in the stretching room appear as though they may be getting effects that may uh, make them look as though they're coming to life. 
as well as the ghost host voice is going to be made to seem to float around as a part of the upgrade to the digital audio system. So um, as more details come out, I'm becoming more and more excited about what is going to be coming into the Haunted Mansion later on this year. Also, Epcot cast members are reporting that the Muppet Mobile Labs will be appearing this week for possibly as short as a two-week period in, like I said, not the studios, but Epcot. The Labs, which are part of Disney's Living Character Initiative, was introduced in Disneyland last year, and it all, although it's unclear right now as to where they will be found, I'd expect them to be in or around the Imagination Pavilion. I know many people are saying, why wouldn't they bring the Muppet Mobile Labs over to Muppet Vision over at the studios? I cannot answer that question, um, but this obviously uh, is part of Disney's plan to continue. Like I said, with the Living Character Initiative, if anybody has a chance to get out to Epcot this week and, and catch Muppet Mobile Labs, I hear it's really something special to see. And by all means, if you have any pictures, please feel free to send them into the show. And of course, if you have any rumors that you want to he- talk about or anything that you've heard, you can send those in via voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or via email at lou at wdwradio.com. As you may have heard me mention over the past couple of shows, the WDW Radio Show was fortunate enough to be nominated by our listeners for the Best Travel Podcast of 2007 over at podcastawards.com. Well, it gives me great pleasure to announce that thanks to all of your support and your votes, it was announced last week that the show did in fact win the award, and to say thank you alone would really not be articulating my sentiments and appreciation enough. Uh, I, I also have to say that I really want to share this with Jeff and everybody who contributed to the show, whether they were a guest or a listener that sent in an email or called the voicemail or posted in the forums. Uh, It's really a testament and a thanks to each and every listener. And I'm really, really humbled and by this and I'm very grateful for this. And I want to thank everybody for their help, including all of my fellow Disney podcasters out there who have always been supportive of me and, and many of us have been become friends over the past couple of years. Uh, I also really want to give a special mention and congratulations to Jeff from Houston. He's the host of The Meandering Mouse. He's also the founder of the DPN. He was also nominated in this category and it really was an honor just to be placed in the same group as he was. Uh, I also want to give continuing best of luck to Ricky over at Inside the Magic. He was nominated in the best produced category, but unfortunately has to wait until the end of September to uh, to find out the results in that category. But of course, I hope for the best. And uh, I also have to say thank you because I know she's listening to my incredibly supportive and very patient wife and my family. She's always been so encouraging of everything that I'm doing, even when she sees me mixing and editing at, at 3 a.m. because she knows just how important the show is to me and uh, more more than anything else this award really is something that I hope will eventually benefit the Disney community as a whole and hopefully turns on a whole new group of people to the many great Disney podcasts out there not just mine because there, there's a ton of other really really good shows out there and I think podcasting really has evolved and it's matured in a very very short period of time and I hope that this award will serve to prove that what we're doing really is kind of like a legitimate form of media and that we present it with hopefully professionalism and integrity and most of all passion behind what we're doing and um, 
Again, this, this award really gets shared with all of you as well because it's only because of you that it came to be and it's because of you that I do this each and every week and that I love doing what I'm doing so much. And uh, it really does mean a great deal to me personally and I do want to share it with all of you and of course, uh, especially Jeff and everybody who has joined me on the show. So I really want to say thank you very, very much. I really, really do appreciate it. This is Cindy. Hi, this is Ray, and we are the Bare Necessities. We're here to congratulate Lou Mangello for winning the, the award for the best travel podcast of 2006 for Mouse Tunes. Wait, wait, Cindy, it's not 2006 and it's not Mouse Tunes. It's best travel podcast for 2007 for the WDW radio show. <laughs> I was wondering why you wanted to call him. I mean, that was last year. I don't know why you wanted to congratulate well, him for an award that he got last year. Well, he won the award last year. He won the same award for a different show. He does two shows? Last year. No, he could, they discontinued the, the Mouse Tune show. So he won the same award for a different show consecutive years. Well, congratulations. But I think I know <laughs> what his secret is. Oh, what's that? Well, it's the fact that he produces two-hour shows. So what we're going to do to try to win the award for next year is we're going to start doing three-hour shows. There is no way. Yeah, three-hour shows. No, no, That's no, no, his no. secret. We we'll win for sure. No, no, no. We can't do a three-hour show, Ray. It's, three- and it's No, no, no. It's not the length of the podcast, but the quality of his work that he was awarded this award for. Well, whatever it is. Lou, congratulations. Congratulations, Lou. I couldn't think of a better person it could go to. Uh, I know all the hard work you do, and you've helped us out and a lot of other communities out, and just all-around good guy. Lou, we applaud your show and applaud you, and congratulations. And we give your award a necessity. Yep, you're a big necessity (laughs) there. Well, I almost said big guy, but um, he's not quite as big as we are. (laughs) Anyway, congratulations, Lou, and uh, keep cranking them out. I still think we're going to do three-hour shows. That's his. That's got to be the secret. There's no. There's no way that we could do yep, twenty three minutes hour of shows. Wor- worth of work in three hours, right? Three. What are we, we going to do? This dining nope, experience show. It don't matter. was great. It don't matter. It's going to be three hours, and that's it. What are we doing? This week's Hidden Treasure of Walt Disney World segment is a new hidden treasure to me as well. And it was one that was just introduced to me by a good friend, Jason Zucker. He is the character watch artist you may have heard on the show once before over at Sunset Club Couture. Well, he asked me, he says, oh, have you ever seen the the names of the people? And I said, sure, I've seen them at the Great Mover. I said, no, 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 come with me. And we went into the queue of the Magic of Disney animation, sometimes another hidden treasure, Walt Disney World, depending on what they're doing in there. But there's a little area off to the side right in before... You enter um, the the actual animation building, and there are three um, uh, of the the handprints and signatures of people, very different from what you see in front of the Great Move Ride Racing. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody what we have in front of us? Well, we actually have some uh, animators and also animation directors here. Uh, Mark Davis, of course, uh, who created Tinkerbell, uh, and is behind uh, many many characters. Uh, also, Ward Kimball. 
who was an animator for many years, uh, a big train enthusiast, uh, actually got Walt involved again in trains. And, of course, Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas, uh, Frank and Ollie, as they're sometimes called, uh, who created memorial, uh, memorable, excuse me, memorable characters. Uh, I mean, just to name a few, um, uh, Rufus the Cat, uh, the Dalmatians from 101 Dalmatians, uh, Prince John, Robin Hood. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And uh, we have their handprints here. Uh, also, Ken O'Connor uh, and also Ken Anderson, who uh, were animators and then became directors of films of the late 60s like Jungle Book and uh, Robin Hood. And uh, we even have Warf Kimball here who drew a little sketch of Mickey Mouse. And their hand- there's, there's another hidden Mickey right here. Too. There's another hidden Mickey right here. It's, uh, it's Mickey Mouse drawn by Warren Kimball himself uh, May 1st of 1989, which is uh, when the studios opened, I believe. Um, so, yeah, their handprints are here, and uh, you can put your hands in them. And they also have uh, the pencils that they used uh, to write their names. They're also uh, inside the cement. It's a nice little treasure to see and, and uh, something that you really won't see uh, unless you visit the, the Disney Studios in uh, Burbank, California, because their handprints are there in the Disney uh, Legends uh, Plaza. Um, but this is something they did uh, a while back, and uh, it's just a nice little treasure to have right here at our animation exhibit. I think this is awesome because it's in such an area that that guests probably never come to. I had no idea this even existed. And to see, you know, we all know Mark Davis and Ward Kimball. And, and I think the thing that's really neat about these two that, that is different from, than the other handprints you see in front of the theater are the pencils. There, there's something I think that's just, it, it's very, uh, it, it's really special. And it's really neat that they've done that. And, and this is a nice, quiet, little out-of-the-way spot that I think guests would never have occasion to come down to. Yeah, and uh, like I was telling you before, I used to, uh, on my break times, I used to bring my canvases and uh, paint down here sometimes, just to be in this nice little shaded area, and just to have these guys here, uh, their their images of their of their handprints and all that here, uh, makes it kind of extra special that we're, that, you know, that we're in their presence, they were here, and they left such a mark on our company and, and really uh, created characters that we still draw today, which is very special. Well, so often when I do these hidden treasure segments, uh, you know, I talk about things that people walk by, they may not realize. This truly is hidden because it is so far removed from normal guest traffic areas where I suggest you come by, just take a look at it. I'll put some pictures up in the show notes, but you should come by and take a look. Uh, Next time you go and visit the Magic Disney Animation, if you don't see the show, you can kind of walk past the queue and go right down here. So, uh, again, Jason Zucker, watch artist over at Sunset Club Couture. Thank you very much. You, You made my day today. Introduced me to a true new hidden treasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Always happy to help. Well, hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. This is Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com, and it is update time. Update for challenge number three in our Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge series. We want to thank everybody for all their submissions over the last week and a half. It was great seeing the level of participation. We had some great photos submitted. And it's always good being able to relive uh, relive the magic through other people's photos and other people's stories. Uh, We will be doing something special on geomouse.com with these photos in in a collage type of format over the next coming weeks. So please stay tuned. Uh, But now it is time to announce the winner for challenge number three. And I am happy to say that the winner of the third challenge is Nick Fufel. And Nick has decided to name mile marker number three, The Charm. So congratulations to Nick Fufel, who has named mile marker number three in Lou Mangiello's half marathon race, 
The Charm. And Nick wins a prize package consisting of both Walt Disney World trivia books, volumes 1 and 2, signed by Lou the Marathon Man Mangello, a Walt Disney World trivia t-shirt, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com trading pin and lanyard, a Disney Studio Collection wall art of Mickey as the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Of course, there's also going to be a certificate of dedication for mile marker number three, which is going to be known as the charm. We will go ahead and post that as well on geomouse.com. Nick will also be entered into the grand prize drawing with the other winners, which will again occur after the half marathon in January. And stay tuned over the next couple weeks as Lou and I will announce what the grand prize will be and what it will consist of. And finally, geomouse.com will donate $100 to the Dream Team Project as a part of this effort. So we're going to send it back to the radio show for a little while, but stay tuned because challenge number four will be coming up here shortly. So we want to send it back to Lou Mangello. Congratulations again, Nick. Mile marker number three is the charm. Take it away, Lou. In honor of the recent announcement by Disney of the impending name change from the Disney MGM Studios to Disney's Hollywood Studios, we want to do another Disney scene investigation of another area of the studios, and that's Echo Lake. Because Echo Lake and the things that surround it are filled with fun movie and character references. So who else other than Jeff Pepper should come on on to help investigate what they mean as only he and I and maybe a few other people are walking around taking pictures of obscure crates and uh, manhole covers on the floor. So, Jeff, welcome to the show again, buddy. Hey, Lou. Thanks for, for having me back, and we're going to have some fun here digging around. Yeah, yeah, th- this is a lot of fun because uh, if you're a fan of the movies, especially some of the movies from, from the golden age of Hollywood, um, you really, if you walk by, I'm sure you've picked up on a lot of these references. But let's talk about where we're, we're making reference to first. If you go down Hollywood Boulevard, and as you approach the hat, you make a left, you'll see Min and Bill's Dockside Diner on the shores of Echo Lake with Dinosaur Gertie on the other side. And don't worry, we're going to talk about Gertie herself too. But um, what do you say we talk about the diner first and, and what it is and what it references? Well, let's let's take a step back, just one quick thing, and kind of just talk about what Echo Lake refers to. Uh, Echo Lake, a lot of people, you know, when they're walking into that area, don't even realize that that area of the park has a specific name. And reference and Echo Park was inspired, or Echo Lake was inspired by Echo Park, which was an area of, in Los Angeles that was kind of the Hollywood before there was a Hollywood. It was the area where, in the uh, silent era, in the teens and early twenties, where a lot of you know Hollywood act uh, filming was done. Uh, Max Sennett had a studio there. Um, Tom Mix, uh, the cowboy uh, star, had a studio, and even like Gloria Swanson had a home there. So. It, it's where it's where the uh, Imagineers took inspiration to kind of create the lake in the area. Yeah, and if you look at uh, the Echo Lake area of the Disney Studios and you look at the real Echo Lake, you can definitely see uh, a lot of the similarities. And you can actually probably pick it up from a lot of uh, movies as well. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of movies filmed in the area. In fact, Chinatown, uh, the Jack Nicholson film uh, from the 70s was filmed there. And it's because the area retains so much of that kind of classic Hollywood look and design and architecture. And I think that probably played into a little bit of the inspiration for the uh, Imagineers when they designed the area because it was, it was still retaining that whole feel. Yeah, and that's one thing. It definitely has that very kind of early, you know, uh, 
early 20s, early 30s kind of look and feel to it. Um, but Men and Bills specifically itself, um, it's called Men and Bills Dockside Diner. It's actually just a snack shop. And it, they, they have uh, shakes, they have spicy cheese stuffed pretzels, um, things like that as well in there. But uh, let's talk about specifically the diner and we'll talk about the facade. And, and first of all, who, who are Men and Bill? Min and Bill is from a movie from 1931 that uh, starred Wallace Berry and uh, Marie Dressler as the characters of Min and Bill. And the movie had a waterfront theme to it, and so that inspired basically the look of the diner. Uh, it's, it's a little tramp steamer type you know, ship design, and that's where it came from. And, and again, here's one of the interesting things where they tell you about the details. Uh, in this case, there is a small plaque um, in front of the diner that explains, you know, the movie reference. Yeah, and it, it's it's very interesting that they chose, like you said, uh, and the location for a number of reasons, because I think the name makes reference not only specifically to the movie, but the choice of putting it on this old kind of tramp-style steamer uh, is something that you probably would have found in that area around that time where it would be kind of, you know, it's called the, the California crazy movement where you have, you know, buildings shaped like hot dogs or donuts or whatever. Here you have something, a snack shop that's in uh, the tramp steamer. Uh, but it also, and maybe this is a, a a bit of a stretch, is it's called Men and Bills because it's a kind of place where a lot of locals would go, a lot of regulars would go, where everybody would know the owners by first name. And if I could really, really stretch it here, it almost kind of makes a, a very vague Disney reference because all of the cast members, as you know, uh, wear name tags. Even the, the CEOs are called by their first name. Right. All right. So it was a stretch, but I was really trying to. <laughs> <laughs> but then that, that takes you right there when you talk about California crazy, that, that architectural style. That takes you right over to Gertie the Dinosaur, which is exactly more more even so than the uh, Men and Bills and the Tramp Steamer, just is 100% that wacky, wacky kind of facade-based, um, just crazy architecture that became very famous in Southern California. Right, and a lot of people, especially younger people, have no idea who Gertie is. They don't know if it's just a character that was made up. But she's actually very, very important, not only to... Uh, MGM, but to the Disney company and to the entire film industry because of who she was and what she was able to accomplish in the field of anim- animation. Really kind of being that first animated, really, really animated character that was yeah. fluid and expressive and, and so much more. Yeah, Gertie is, is, is just basically a benchmark in the history of animation. Uh, Windsor McKay created Gertie the Dinosaur. He was a famous comic strip um, artist that then went into animation and this is Gertie the Dinosaur goes back to 1914 and it was remarkable on a number of levels because what Windsor McKay actually did was uh, at least in bigger venues he toured with the film and he would actually go up on stage and he he animated the film in such a way that it made it look like Gertie was interacting with him like he would have her do tricks and he would basically interact with the film itself. So it was very groundbreaking in a number of ways, but it's really seen, as you mentioned, even especially important to, you know, with the Disney um, company's history and animation, it was just, it's the roots of animation. It was one of the, the hallmarks, you know, and like I said, when you go back, I mean, this is 15 years before, you know, Mickey and Steamboat Willie. Yeah, and, and he did, you know, very, very, rel- I guess, relatively today's standards, very simple tricks like, running the film in reverse to make it look as though 
Gertie would drink the entire lake and then spit it out, which obviously also uh, is is the reason that she is where she is because there was a scene in the film where Gertie uh, drinks up a lake and then spits it right back out again. Yeah, they definitely tie it into to the original film. Again, some some of the things that are just probably so overlooked by the casual guest, but but very very deliberate in what Disney was doing. But one of the fun parts about this area, uh, and again, we were talking about making these references to classic Hollywood movies, are the crates back on the opposite side of the lake, right in front of Min and Bill's Dockside Diner. Yeah, it, I don't know what it is. Um, I've done quite a few blog posts on it, and a few of the other bloggers out there have done them as well. Imagineers just love to paint things on crates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every park, Magic Kingdom, Animal Kingdom, I think the only exception might be Epcot and, and probably in World Showcase there's a few crates hanging around there as well but it's just they love to play games with crates and here there are some ones that are very very obvious very evident and a couple of ones that might be a little bit more obscure yeah the um, we got the first one I got here is uh, the one that's George Bailey and that's Bedford Falls New York and that's being sent to George Bailey from Wainwright Enterprises and that might be a little tricky for some, although it's become more famous in, in probably the last 15 to 20 years. And that's the reference to the movie It's a Wonderful Life that uh, starred Jimmy Stewart. And he played the character of George Bailey. It was you know kind of famous for its Christmas themes. And in the movie, one of his best friends was a gentleman named Sam Wainwright. And if anybody's – a lot of folks are familiar with it where you know George goes back and sees what life would be like without him thanks to a, a guardian angel. And – the town at the end comes to his aid to bail him out because had money, lost money or whatever. And Sam Wainwright was one of the guys that basically wired him as much cash as he needed. So there, there was that direct connection on that crate itself. Yeah, and there's another one there that I really like. And I also have a question to you about because you might know better. And that is um, a shipment from the Rosebud Sled Company to Charles Foster Kane. And that obviously makes reference to Citizen Kane. But if you look at the address very carefully, it says Xanado Compound, Gulf Coast, Florida. Now, Xanadu was supposed to be the fictional estate of Charles Kane. Is that, uh, was that something, is it is Xanadu spelled correctly? Is it spelled incorrectly? Because it's spelled with a, with an O at the end. Oh, I didn't catch that. No, it's, I, I think they might be incorrect then because to my knowledge, but I would have to go back and watch the film, I never caught that detail, is, yeah, Xanadu was, was just the traditional Xanadu of, you know, the poem Xanadu to Kublai Khan. Um, so I think that's, you know, what a reference to. I, when I remember seeing Citizen Kane, it was always a straight reference to, you know, the Kublai Khan Xanadu from the poem. Right. Not the Olivia Newton-John Xanadu. Not, not even. No. <laughs> so. not that, well, that, you know, she's, she's had the poem too, but, you know, <laughs> right. we, we'll go we'll go with the, the Orson Welles classic <laughs> reference here. Rather than. <laughs> uh, another one that's probably very obvious to people is the bicycle sh- that's being shipped to Miss Dorothy Gale in Kansas, obviously from A Wizard of Oz. Right. And on the same MGM track, there is the uh, Scarlet O'Hara, which should be pretty pretty obvious to everybody. But there's a little little details in in the in the address there as well. Uh, for instance, the address is 121539 Mitchell Lane. I'm assuming 121539 will likely refer to the release date of Gone with the Wind. Uh, Mitchell Lane. Mitchell refers to Margaret Mitchell, the author of uh, Gone with the Wind. And uh, Fleming Fashions is just getting a little bit more obscure. Fleming Fashions refers to Victor Fleming, who was the actual director of um, Gone with the Wind. And he also directed Wizard of Oz as well. All right. And there's one more uh, one more there, and that's from Casablanca. 
And that's a crate that's addressed to Rick's Cafe American 112642 Rue Renault, Casablanca, Morocco. And that's from Curtiz Wine and Spirits Limited. Now, before you, you go looking for this one, this one may not be there. It seems, Jeff, as though a couple of these crates um, that we're going to talk about now may have actually been removed over the past couple of months. Yeah, uh, I did not notice that one the last time I was there, and that's a good one because that obviously refers to Casablanca. And again, one of the you know the, the obvious Rick's Cafe American, most people will probably get right away. The Curtis reference is in fact to the director of that film, which was uh, Michael Curtis. Yeah, and the other one that I'm really sad is gone, and uh, we should give credit where it's due. Uh, Jessica over at ifwecandreamit.blogspot.com pointed this out. She did a recent blog post about this. And uh, like her, one of my favorite ones was a reference to the movie, and, and now Broader Musical, The Producers by Mel Brooks. Uh, there was a crate addressed, addressed to Max Bialystok from Bialystok and Bloom Theatrical Producers, and it was from Anita Doubleset Ledger Company in Austin, New York. Now, obviously, Anita Doubleset as in I need a double set of ledgers so I can, you know create my springtime for Hitler musical and, and scam people. But again, for whatever reason, it looks like these two may very well be gone. Yeah. Cause I didn't, I didn't notice either one. And the producer's one was new to me when I saw it on her blog. So it was a good catch on her part. Yeah. And the only thing I noticed from looking at pictures that I have and pictures that she has and a couple of the photos online is that the crates are in different locations and the font is different. And so for whatever reason, some of these crates have been taken out for one reason or another, but, but that's something that's, Sometimes good in a way because it gives you reason to go back and keep looking because you don't know what the Imagineers are going to put in next. So, but Jeff, but you know, before we leave this this Echo Lake area, I want to kind of jump across with you uh, to kind of like across the promenade to where the um, Hollywood and Vine Restaurant and Fifties Primetime Cafe is because there's a couple of things there that I think we should point out as well up in the windows and then uh, in one of the facades of the buildings. Yeah, there's some really neat details along there, and they're not really hidden. They're just Again, one of our favorite mottos is look up. And here again, there's just some, some fun stuff to catch as you're walking along there. Uh, if you look up, you know, we pointed out one of the details uh, when we did our Roger Rabbit uh, segment uh, a few months back. And that is you'll see the window for um, Eddie Valiant, uh, private investigator. And it features the outline of where, you know, Roger Rabbit went through the window itself. But if you also look up there, there's a couple other places. Um, there's the J.J. Taps Dance Studio. And um, they have auditions every Tuesday, nine o'clock. If you want to <laughs> sign up, and enrollment is limited, so you gotta you gotta get in there. They've got you know just some some odds and ends like office space for rent. And I think this was always cute to me because it's you know seventy five cents a day, five dollars a week, no actors, but hot and cold water is available. <laughs> yeah, I like the no, I like the little no actors sign in the in the window next yeah. to it. <laughs> and the the one funny thing is I think I and for a long time I never even caught this because I just wasn't paying close enough attention was the di- director's best friend stu- incorporated stunt dogs company. <laughs> I got a kick out of. Again, it might just and be the, us. Yeah, it's, it probably is, but you know, hey. Like, you know, why don't you guys out. just go and ride the rides already? What do we, <laughs> and when you when you hear what we're going to talk about next, you're really the. But anyway, let's go. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, the Echo Lake Apartments. Yeah, the the Echo Lake Apartments. I this is one of those things, and again, yeah, you just you just hit the nail on the head. People are going to just go. You people are crazy, but this. <laughs> This small, very—it's a very small kind of facade there, and it—it's just fascinating to look at because for me, it just—it—it it really transports me to a different place in time. And I—I I, I know it was just sort of just 
window dressing when they were were creating you know the restaurants and everything. But if you go down and it's between Hollywood and Vine and the Tune In Lounge, correct? Right. And the Fifties Prime Type Cafe. It's just a small little area, and it, it, there's a gate, and it's like a wrought iron gate, and that's how you see the name Echo Lake Apartments, I believe. It's 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 worked into the wrought iron of the gate, and the actual address. Um, no, it, it doesn't have an address. I'm sorry. It just has the Echo Lake Apartments. But if you look very close, and this is like, again, where people are just going to say we're idiots, is, you know, there's a set of mailboxes, and each mailbox has a name and a number. And it, the interesting thing is that they've been weathered and faded by time, but there, there's just, you can make out some names here and there. And, you know, again, as we always are prone to, who are they? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> Yeah, and, and folks, and, in this case, I don't have a clue. Once <laughs> no, and and if you look, if you're walking down the promenade, like I said, you'll see the Echo Lake apartment. You'll see it's kind of this this Spanish uh, mission style building right next to the Tuna Lounge. Very different kind of architecture right next to each other. And you don't see the mailbox. You have to really walk up to the gate, look to the right, because the mailboxes are embedded in the the blue building. That's the Tuna Lounge, and it's a it's a very old style uh, mailbox. There's maybe. 10 in there and i've spent way too much time taking close-up photographs yeah. <laughs> right so you know and i'm writing down you know room 201 is is bear and quinn okay who I, and yes yeah. invariably i come home and i'm googling i'm like there's got to be a connection and then i hear dave smith from the walt disney archives in the back of my mind going lou sometimes a mailbox is just a mailbox they, they very well may have picked yeah. this up and and thrown it in there and, and not actually done anything with the names well, see, I swear, I swear on that room apartment one hundred and six says TV kink, whatever that means. <laughs> hey, listen, this is—I try and keep a family-friendly podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but just real quick too, before um, I did, this reminded me of another spot, and nearby but not in that same row. If you kind of go over, kind of just opposite where Men and Bills is, there, it's sort of the backside of the Keystone Clothiers um, store that's mm-hmm. on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. On the opposite side. Um, there's facades there and one of the facades there is actually 540 echo park drive and it's very it's very funny because it's on you have a business on the first level which is the glamour salon and then there's a directory um (laughs) on the side of the building there and it's for three dentists that are have offices on the second floor (laughs) and the three dentists are c howie poem ruth canal and les paint (laughs) Again, people are like, "Why don't you guys just ride the rides?" Buddy? <laughs> what are you doing, taking pictures of that and, and writing it down? But, but I, you know, I agree with you. I, I love these little details and the fact that the Imagineers took the time to put this kind of stuff in there. And you know, when we were talking about the mailbox, it made me think. You know, we'll have to cover this on a completely separate DSI at one point. But we'll talk about the streets of America and some of those side streets and the facades and the buildings and the, and the different stores that are in there and a lot of little antiques and, and artifacts that are in there because I've gone crazy sometimes trying to figure out what some of those things are or where they came from. Yeah, there's the, the one that I particularly like there is the uh, funeral uh, parlor. Right. <laughs> and there's a, that's, that's, you said, that's, that's for another day. <laughs> that, and that's got trivia question written all over it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, before we, we before we leave the, the Echo Lake area, and again, we touched on the fact that obviously there's been the, the announcement of the the change of the name of the studios from the Disney MGM Studios to Disney's Hollywood Studios. And after that came out, I've gotten I started getting another series of emails that I've received in the past and, and rumors start coming up again on the online about removing the Sorcerer Mickey hat. Well, you know, now that they're changing the name, now that MGM's out of the way, 
Is this going to be the time that they're going to remove the Sorcerer Mickey hat? And I wanted to talk a little bit about why that's not going to happen. Um, this is something that was brought up to me a while back. I, I've kind of started to do my research on it and, and had this confirmed from some other people. And so you know, the hat placement was very, very intentional. It was very deliberate that it was where it was at the end of Hollywood Boulevard and very intentional that it in fact blocked the, the Chinese theater facade. And why is that, Lou? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jeff. You're <laughs> we're, welcome. We're getting the timing thing down. <laughs> I, I know the answer. But I <laughs> All right, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the Chinese theater itself and, and a little bit about its, its lineage and its history. Um, that was built back in 1927 uh, after the success of the Grauman's Egyptian Theater, which was close by in Hollywood, California. And uh, it's obviously, you know, it's a landmark in Hollywood. It's been the host to Academy Award ceremonies. We all know about the, the cement blocks in the front that they have been recreated so faithfully here at the studios. But from 19, uh, from the early 1920s until about 1973, it was known as Grumman's Chinese Theater. From 73 to 2001, it changed the name to Man's Chinese Theater. Um, that was acquired by Man Theaters back in 1973. The company was going bankrupt. And so along with some, some of the other properties, they were sold around 2000 to a partnership company comprised of Warner Brothers and Paramount Pictures, who also acquired the man name 2002 they changed the name back to Grumman's things like that but here's the reason why the hat is where it is uh, when Warner Brothers took over in 2000 they no longer wanted Disney to use their theater basically as the essential icon of the park because that's what it was they call it the water tower but that's what everybody knew the park and that's what, what you see when you first walk uh, through the gates so in fact they actually originally wanted Disney to, to tear down the entire building or the facade I mean that was their original thing saying we need you to get rid of this in its entirety uh, there were some sort of licensing and copyright uh, disagreements I don't know all the details obviously of what they were uh, but it seems like a compromise was reached and that was the building of the sorcerer's hat where it was essentially to block the view from the entrance of Hollywood Boulevard and make it the park's icon, remove the theater as the park's icon. Now, when I first heard this, it, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't think it was true, but I've confirmed this with a number of cast members. More importantly, I've been able to talk to a number of artists from the company and from the Disney Design Group uh, and spoke to, actually to another artist who I'm going to have on the show uh, in a couple of weeks who's done some work that was commissioned by Disney. And he was specifically instructed not to have any shots that included the theater in it. He was told any shots, for example, down Sun. He has got a, a painting of Hollywood Boulevard with Mickey at the end, the Sorcerer Mickey hat, and he had the um, the top of the theater. He was told he needed to remove that. He could not have anything uh, referencing the theater behind the even behind the hat. Uh, and if you look very carefully, even the location of the PhotoPass photographers are very carefully determined, uh, and they've kind of been instructed to you know take the pictures in, in such a way and use such an angle to include the hat, but to be sure to eliminate the theater behind it. And if you look, you know, try and go find a pin with, with a theater on it or, or a T-shirt with a picture of the theater on it, and you just can't do it. And, and that is actually the reason why. Now, the interesting thing is, though, when you, when you mentioned that then, the only real re memory I have recently of a reference to the theater is on the garbage cans. <laughs> there is a silhouette on the garbage cans that I believe references the theater, and it's the garbage cans that are kind of along Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, that say, help keep our city clean. And um, 
I wonder if uh, Warner Brothers and those folks uh, didn't catch that. Are they, are they still? I mean, have you seen them recently? Or are they on the last trip? Yeah, I, I went through my you know <coughs> geek uh, garbage can <laughs> yeah, picture taking phase. <laughs> but laughing. Uh, well, you know, even I'm going. God, man, this guy's a geek. But. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I smell research trip in my future now. Got it. Now, now next time I go down next week. Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to take pictures of it. But yeah, that, um, you know, like I said, that that's something that's been confirmed. I thought it was very, very interesting. So I think any rumors about the hat being removed, the hat being moved to another section of the park are, are wholly untrue, barring any sort of change in either the ownership of the theater or Disney being able to, to work out some of these copyright and licensing agreements. So... Um, and if, you know, if we want to put a little spin on things, you know, we talked about the California crazy architecture with Min and Bill. And Gertie, you can kind of apply that to the hat. The hat would be very much along those lines. So in that regard, it's not quite the aesthetic conflict that, you know, was created with the wand over at um, Spaceship Earth. I mean, there is a degree that you can you can see a kind of, um, you know, aesthetic history to that with the California crazy stuff. Right. I mean, I, you know, some people find the hat, I mean, patently offensive, basically. I, I don't have a problem with it. You know, being the purest that I am, that I love the view down Hollywood Boulevard and seeing the theater at the end. Absolutely. It's something that I miss. Um, was I surprised when the hat went up, where it went up? Did I think maybe it was a, a temporary thing? Yes. Um, but, but I do like it, and I think it makes a very good icon for the park. Um, so, and, and, I, and I like the reference, like you said, to, to that kind of California crazy movement as well. And more than anything, the reference to Fantasia. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to see what they're doing with the enhanced lighting effects. They're supposed to come later on this year uh, that we'll probably see around Mousefest. And really, they could just take, bring the wand over because, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's all from Fantasia. <laughs> That's right. Please have, don't. Don't call. Don't write. I was kidding. <laughs> That's Jeff Pepper. At uh, <laughs> He kidding. said it, folks. Not kidding. Me. He's the guy taking pictures of garbage cans. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But hey, yeah, I'm I, not the only one. Jessica, we were talking about, she does too. Okay, so there's two, or maybe three of us. <laughs> yeah. I, I have pictures of garbage cans too, but uh, so yeah, and then you know, like, like I said, I don't, I don't think the, uh, you know, the, the hat is still subject of much debate, and and did it change the landscape? Yes, but uh, so th- there's our our Disney scene investigation of Echo Lake and the surrounding area with with a, a slight tangent onto uh, Hollywood Boulevard and talking about the Sorcerer Mickey hat. Uh, again, like Jeff said, you know, look up, look down, look around. Make sure you take the time, even if you're just sitting, taking a rest, because everything there, other than maybe those mailboxes at the apartments, um, has a reason and has a story behind it. And uh, and there's a lot of really, really good stuff, especially over at the, at the studios. So, again, we're geeks, but we're proud geeks. <laughs> so... That's going to do it for this week's DSI. Don't forget to go and visit Jeff's blog over 20, at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. And if you like these segments, you're going to be down at MouseFest. Don't forget that we will be doing a DSI Disney Scene Investigation live in the parks. We'll be doing it Sunday at the Magic Kingdom. We'll be taking you through Frontierland and pointing out more than just garbage cans, I promise you. Bring your cameras and your magnifying glasses. we got some stuff to show you, folks. Looking forward to it. Jeff, thanks as always, buddy. Yeah, I always had a great time, Lou. Thank you. (laughs) 
I still have a lot of your email and feedback to get through, so let's go ahead and start off this week with an email from Joanna, who writes, Lou, I was recently at Walt Disney World in Orlando and rode through It's a Small World. As we were floating through, I looked down in the water and saw all the coins that have been thrown overboard for a wish. What happens to all the money that's tossed into the water? Does it get cleaned out? And if so, where does the money go? I've searched the web and I've had nothing. I've also asked someone who works for Disney and I have several friends searching. Thanks for your help, Joanna. Joanna, thank you very much for that great question. It is one that I get pretty often. Uh, if All the money that's collected from uh, water-based attractions like that, as well as fountains, etc., throughout the property, is collected and does go to a charitable organization. Now, for a number of years, it was known as Disney Hand, and actually some of the fountains around property have little plaques explaining that the money does go to Disney Hand. Now I believe it's called Disney's Worldwide Outreach. And again, it still does the same thing. Uh, they're, they're, they're still the number one wish granting uh, for children who have life-threatening medical conditions through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They do about 5,000 of those a year. They also give them trips on Disney cruises. They support children's hospitals. They do um, they, they do toys for tots. All kinds of charitable things, even um, some specifically to the Orlando area. If you go to DisneyHand.com, it'll redirect you to the new Disney Worldwide Outreach Program. I don't know exactly when the name changed, but again, the mission um, of the organization still remains the same. Our next email is a tip, and this comes from dmore89, who writes, Lou, first of all, congratulations on the podcast award. I'm trying to catch up on all the shows, and right now I'm on show number eight. On this show, you talked about dining plans and said that many people complain that they get too much food. I'm not sure if you've ever talked about this, but on our last trip, we stayed at Pop Century and discovered we could use our snack options at Everything Pop to get a free lanyard and pin. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much for the tip. It's actually something I did not realize. I didn't know you could actually use your snack credits for merchandise. Um, But for people who maybe don't get to use them all or, or don't want all the snack options, it's a great way to use it without letting it go to waste. Miku78 wrote in and said, Hey Lou, I was just wondering, what night do you think would be a better or less crowded night to go to Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party? November 12th, which is a Monday, or November 15th, which is a Thursday? I'll have my father-in-law and husband just being drugged there by myself and mother-in-law, and most significantly, my three-and-a-half-year-old twin boys. She goes on to say that her concerns are about doing this so early in the week uh, to tire out the boys at the beginning of the trip and the other is the amount of people that may be extending their Jersey Week stay, which is the week before, to attend, and that driving up the attendance. Thank you very much for the advice. P.S. I need to make this trip great, easy, and fun for the men, so it'll convince them to go in the future. My mother-in-law and I are already talking about a Disney cruise. Well, thank you for the question. And you're basically asking about, should you go on a Monday night for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party or the Thursday night, the 12th or the 15th? Uh, Based on the crowd calendars, I checked over at touringplans.com. Monday night is a 5, Thursday night is a 6. Um, Notwithstanding that, I still probably would have suggested going on a Monday night. I just think it will be less crowded. I wouldn't worry about any holdovers from Jersey Week the week before. Uh, For those of you who are wondering what Jersey Week is, traditionally the first, second week of November is when all the New Jersey schools have off for teacher conferences, etc. So a lot of people go down to Walt Disney World during that week. It does increase the crowds. Again, I don't think they'll be carrying over uh, to that Monday because everybody will be back in school. And finally, if you're concerned about the trip being easy, great, and fun for the men, I think that you're doing exactly what you need to do to make that happen. You're going at a great time of year. The weather is wonderful. The crowds are very light. You're taking them to the Christmas party. Uh, I think they're, they're really going to enjoy themselves, and I wouldn't have to worry about them wanting to go back in the future. Next email comes from Alyssa Sullivan, who writes, Lou, I just finished listening to your latest episode and love the segment on the music. When I went back to Disney a few months ago, most memories I recalled were based on music. 
You can imagine my sadness when I found out Listen to the Land was no longer played. At least, my last visit about 10 years ago informed me of the loss of Veggie Veggie Fruit Fruit. Anyway, I was wondering if there were any websites that offered stream, streams of Disney music. Perhaps someone has a station with all the music from the parks. I can only imagine how enjoyable that would be to get me through the day. Sadly, all the cassettes we had from back in the day are long gone, so being able to listen online would be amazing. Thanks for the great segment, Melissa. Melissa, thank you. I'm glad you really enjoyed it. And again, you're a testament to the fact that what we were saying is true, is that the music is so important to people and so subjective, yet it's something that really you carry from the parks. But to answer your question about websites that offer streaming music, I'll have to point you over to my friend Mike Newell over at mouseworldradio.com. He has a number of channels of Disney music. Some are free, some are paid through Live 65. Uh, it's really wonderful. A lot of the, the tracks that he'll play throughout the day and the night are um, timed just right. So, for example, you might hear Illuminations at 9 o'clock at night, just as if you were standing at Epcot. So, again, that's mouseworldradio.com. Another question about the Seven Wonders comes from Brian, who writes, Lou, I just started listening to your show recently and really like the history segments you do with Jeff Pepper. I'm a huge Epcot fan, so I really enjoyed your discussion about the Epcot that never was a few months back. However, you've referred to a Seven Wonders segment you did previously on Spaceship Earth. Could you please let me know which episode that might have been? I've been downloading and listening to, to bits and pieces of your previous shows and can't seem to find it. Thanks again. That comes from Brian. Brian, thank you for the email. And yeah, I did cover the very first of the Seven Wonders on the old Mousetune show. That was from January 7th of 07. But uh, I can tell you that I will be redoing the uh, Spaceship Earth as not only part of the Epcot retrospective series, but as, as one of the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World with Jeff Pepper on uh, this show sometime in the next couple of weeks or months. So definitely stay tuned for that. John Thompson writes in asking me to please solve a mystery for him. And he says, Lou, I've heard you mention the Stallport area of Walt Disney World. And for the life of me, I cannot figure what you were talking about. I've even asked a few cast members where this was and they had no idea. To refresh your memory, you said it might have been a possible location for a fifth park. I'm a big Walt Disney World guy and know just about everything. But so help me, this one has me stumped. Please solve the mystery for me and a bunch of others, too. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. And that, again, is from John. John, thank you. Um, I did make reference to a stallport uh, in the rumor section not too long ago. There was a, a longstanding rumor for a while that the stallport, and I'll explain to you what that is, um, may have been the location of a new resort, not necessarily a new theme park. It instead, it looks like it's going to be used as a staging area for some of the construction equipment for the construction of the new contemporary tower. Now, what and where is the Stallport? Well, it's Stall, S-T-O-L, Port. And Stall stands for Short Takeoff and Landing. And yes, I'm talking about an, an actual runway because there is a runway that was built, although it's no longer used, on Walt Disney property. And if you've been to Walt Disney World a number of times, you've actually passed it, you've probably seen it, and don't even realize. Because as you go through the main gate to get into the Magic Kingdom uh, parking area, you can go either off to the left to the main parking, or you can go straight ahead towards Wilderness Lodge, the Contemporary and Polynesian, etc. Well, off to the right, as you pass through that gate, you'll see a large open area there. That's actually the location of the Stallport. And again, this was a very small airstrip uh, that was used at some point when the Magic Kingdom first opened, when it was uh, being constructed. There were a lot of rumors that surrounded it, whether or not it was just used for celebrities or Walt Disney's plane, things like that. There's also rumors that um, as planes uh, land on the on the airstrip or, le or um, are taking off, that the bumps in the road may cause the plane's tires rolling over the pavement to play zippity-doo-dah. However, um, the, the port, the, the 
area has not been used for that for a long time. And you should note that it was never used for, for large aircraft or commercial aircraft. Uh, there were s some small planes that landed there from time to time. And yes, it was used sometimes by celebrities. Uh, Jim Neighbors, who played Gomer Pyle, and kids are saying, who the heck is Gomer Pyle? Anyway, Jim Neighbors was really big way back when. Uh, he's actually a, a flown in there. There have been some smaller planes that have come in for construction or whatnot. It, for, it was used very, very briefly by a company called Shawnee Airlines for quick trips back and forth to and from the, the Orlando airport. Um, but that was the, the really the extent of it. And if you go onto Google Earth or Google Maps, I'll put, a, I'll put a picture up in the show notes so you can see exactly where it was, exactly where it is uh, in relation to the Magic Kingdom and the Magic Kingdom entrance. But one thing I should throw in here just as a quick aside is that part of the reason why this airstrip was so small and not used very often is because originally, as part of Disney's master plans for Walt Disney World, there was going to be a full-scale international airport on property. Remember, in addition to Walt Disney World, the theme park, there was going to be Epcot, the city. And it was going to be a much grander uh, in-scale type of thing. So yeah, there were originally plans for a full-blown jet airport on property that did never come to pass. This is something I, I may cover in more detail on an upcoming show. Kelly wrote in and said, Lou, I have a question that's always on my mind at Epcot. Why don't they put another restaurant where the Odyssey is? I know they use it for food and wine festival, but I think it would make a great spot for a restaurant. And Kelly, I, and many people who are probably yelling at their iPods agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, Epcot, Epcot's Odyssey originally was a quick service restaurant. It's located in between Future World and World Showcase, very close to the Mexico Pavilion. For many years, that restaurant's been shut down. Like you said, it is being used for a number of events uh, this year, once again, at Epcot's Food and Wine Festival. Part of the reason why I think it has not uh, been reopened is, number one, maybe they just don't know what to do with it. Maybe, two, it wasn't all that popular because of its location. And three, it is used very, very extensively for a lot of corporate events, uh, corporate training events, corporate parties, special events. The venue could be rented out for a number of different things. And I think Disney likely makes a good deal of money from renting out space like that for these type of events. Uh, I, however, would love to see the Odyssey restaurant be uh, uh, maybe even another quick service type restaurant, maybe something where you can sample some of the different uh, foods from around the pavilions in Epcot, or maybe sample foods from around the world that you can't get in Epcot normally. Almost like a miniature food and wine festival under one roof that you can sample all year round. Our next email reads, Hey Lou, my big trip is quickly approaching just 33 days from now. I have a few questions that perhaps you can use on your show. The first one I sent to WDW today, but you know how getting your mail answered on there goes. Sorry, guys. He said it, not me. Anyway, my family's favorite ride on all of Disney property is hands down the great movie ride. When we first rode it so many years ago, we instantly fell in love and ended up riding it four times that trip. And ever since then, we always visit at least two or th even three more times each time. There's just something about that ride that makes it so special to us. Everything about it, from the classic movies to the interactive experience, just speaks to us in a way that many other attractions don't. Imagine my surprise that when becoming a Disney podcast junkie that so many people apparently find it outdated or even boring. I would cringe if they ever made any drastic changes to the ride or the experience it delivers, but in what ways might they consider making it new again besides adding a gaudy saucer or hats to its exterior? Next question, sort of long, sorry. The presence of certain films and characters in the parks seems to dominate over so many others. Pixar and princesses come to mind, and I know a Ratatouille restaurant in the France Pavilion is inevitable. So what are some of the other films or characters that you feel are grossly underrepresented in the parks? What would you like to see more of? What Disney material has not been milked for its full potential? Is there a Tron attraction just waiting to be hatched in Tomorrowland? 
Or maybe a Chronicles of Narnia dark ride at MGM. I know they're not popular anymore, but personally I'd love to see more Black Cauldron or Pete's Dragon in the parks. I'm partial to older characters and wish we could see some more development based on them. I love that Pecos Bill still has his own restaurant and that the Robinsons still hold the lease on their treehouse in Florida. I'm also thrilled they chose the Three Caballeros to retheme the El Rio del Tiempo as opposed to something like the Emperor's New Groove. Looking forward to hearing your opinion. That comes from Chip Joyce in Peoria, Illinois. Chip, thank you very much for the email, and I can definitely appreciate your sentiments about the great movie ride. Now, I don't know if maybe whether it's a combination of nostalgia or just these are movies that to us and our generation and many generations are classics and ones that we know and we love and revere. Of course, it begs the question, what about the next generation? What about the younger people that maybe aren't all that familiar with who James Cagney is? Or some people might even know what some of those movie references are altogether. That's where the thought process has to come in. When, if at all, do we update this uh, attraction? What do we update it with? What kind of movies do we put in there? It would be very interesting. I'd like to hear people's responses to know what do they think if the great movie ride were to be refurbed or or the attractions uh, show scenes were to be taken out. What movies do you think should be represented or could be represented very well in the new attraction? But as far as other characters and other films that should be represented, again, this is something that's likely so subjective specifically because different movies appeal to people in different ways. I, like you, also agree that I like the fact that classic characters are still kept in the parks. Again, you know, are they relevant to a younger generation? You know, uh, kids today might want to see more from films from the the late 90s and early 2000s. They may want to see more Nightmare Before Christmas or stitch or yes some of the pixar films or winnie the pooh um i like you like i said i like a lot of the older movies whether people today would even know you know some of the kids they would even know who they are or what they are and and are they would they be profitable for disney would it make sense to put in a you know herbie the love bug attraction if nobody knows who herbie the love bug is but they obviously know who lightning mcqueen is but again this is something that i would like people to weigh in on i'm going to start a thread in the forums over at disneyworldtrivia.com i'll link to it from the show notes page for this week over at WDWRadio.com. Weigh in, tell us what other attractions, what other movies you'd like to see have attractions or shows made into uh, over at the parks, or, or what do you think maybe some of the classic characters that are, or, or classic films that should be brought in as well. Colin Brown from Michigan writes in and says, Lou, I want to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I don't make the Disney World often, but at least I can keep up on things by listening to your show. I've heard of and read about a club that exists in the Magic Kingdom of Disneyland called Club 33. I'm wondering if such a club exists in the Magic Kingdom of Disney World or why they decided not to incorporate the club into the Magic Kingdom when they designed the Florida Project. Also, have you ever been inside the club and can you tell us something about it? Thanks again for your awesome show and keep up the good work. Again, that's from Colin. Colin, thank you for the email. Like you said, Club 33, as we all know, is a private club out in Disneyland. There is no such club in Walt Disney World. There's been uh, urban legend for a long time about something called a Club 71, things like that. There is nothing like that in the Magic Kingdom or, or any else on property. Uh, part of the reason why was because Club 33 was originally designed and developed when Walt Disney was still alive for Disneyland. It was going to be used for uh, special events and VIPs, things like that. But again, while there are no members-only clubs like Club 33, there are many, many venues um, all around the Walt Disney World property that are used for special events, for VIPs, for corporate lounges, etc. 
Finally, I'm going to answer about 10 emails here with a single response because a number of you have emailed me specifically about recommended reading or books that I like or enjoy about Walt Disney World. For example, Craig Wheeler wanted to know about some books about Walt Disney World and its history, how the parks have changed through the years. David Jacobson wanted to know about some other behind-the-scenes books or books about Imagineering, while some other people asked about Hidden Mickeys, How to Become an Imagineer, whatnot. Uh, What I'm going to do, rather than recite all the books here, is I'm going to put a few links up in the show notes. One, I had done an article about uh, Disney books that I recommended that I enjoyed specifically about the company and about Imagineering. They're like the uh, Walt Disney Imagineering Guide, specifically by the Imagineers. The Imagineers also put out two other books that are out of print, I believe, right now, called The Imagineering Way, Ideas to Ignite Your Creativity, and The Imagineering Workout, Exercises to Shape Your Creative Muscles. Uh, There's also a a number of books that I have in my collection that I refer to all the time. Uh, Again, many of these might be out of print, but I'm going to include as much information as I can. I'll put all these up in the show notes. A few of the other other notable books that I really enjoy is Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. That came out in 1996. It's also out of print, but you can find those online. I like John Hench's Designing Disney book, the Designing Disney's Theme Park Architecture of Reassurance book, as well as Beth Dunlop's Building a Dream Art of Disney Architecture book. All very, very well done. A lot of great pictures, a lot of history in those books. I'd also suggest looking online uh, from either used booksellers or on eBay for a lot of the souvenir books that used to come out in Walt Disney World. There's Walt Disney's Epcot Center. There's Walt Disney World's 20 Magical Years. They used to come out with these uh, hardcover souvenir books. Great way to look back to see what the parks look like at different stages throughout history. Of course, Charlie Ridgway's book called Spinning Disney World has a a great personal reference and and a lot of personal history about working with Walt Disney and the creation of the theme parks. Very, very well done. Charlie's been on the show, and that's a book I really enjoy. I'm going to put a list of these up in the show notes for this week. Again, some of these are out of print, so they are very difficult to find. But if you look hard enough and keep checking places like eBay and some of the used booksellers online, you may be able to find them from time to time. Again, I still have many, many of your emails to get to. If you haven't heard from me via email, I promise I will get to your emails on the show as soon as possible. But please keep the emails coming. You can send it to lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call in and leave a voicemail question if you like. You can call 206-202-4WDW. Again, thanks for your email and your feedback. Okay, it's time once again for the next Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge. And this one involves two of the people that really started this whole thing. The first is Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com. He's the man that came up with the idea for the challenge and provides so many of the prizes uh, for this. And then we also have the man who really started it all. The man who motivated me to decide to run and in turn ended up motivating so many other people to do some amazing things for themselves and for other people. He is the man who knows what it means to get it, Mr. Why We Do What We Do, my good friend and inspiration, Mike Scopa. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lou. Wow, what an introduction. (laughs) I was thinking there was somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for us today, to read our show notes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Mike, since we got you, we got you here. I know the listeners want to know with about five months leading up to the race, what advice do you give Lou now as he prepares for his first half marathon? The, the important thing is to build stamina and not to worry about pace. The important thing is to have a focus on what you need to do, actually breaking it down into uh, months or weeks of, uh, with, with goals for each week and for each month, uh, I think is the best way to do it. If you look too far ahead, it becomes very overwhelming. But if you say to yourself, uh, at, next week at this time, I want, to, uh, I want to be at this level, I think that works very well. I think that taking tiny steps, making little progress uh, is, is very, very important at this point. Because after a month, after two months, you look back and you say, wow, I've, I've come a long way. And I think that that's the, that's the key, to remain focused and not, not look too far ahead right now. That inspires me to run in 2009. This challenge is challenge number four. And we're obviously we're bringing on Mr. Scopa for uh, to help us out in this challenge. And many of you who listen to WDW today, starring that clever comedian, the lover of dinosaur, Matt Hodgeberg, uh, <laughs> knows that uh, the show is typically open with an attraction quote. So, Mike, I'm going to let you give a quick intro on what this week's challenge will be. Okay, uh, for for this week's challenge, Eric, I am going to. Uh, uh, say a quote that is that has been heard in an attraction in one of the Walt Disney World uh, theme parks. It could have come from any of the four theme parks. And what I would like to uh, ask our, our listeners to uh, identify is, number one, which park the quote comes from, which attraction the quote comes from, and who says it. Uh, two out of three. I'll accept two out of three. The uh, the person who uh, who uh, actually uh, says the line may be a little bit maybe a little difficult. And the other thing I want to throw out there is that this can be an attraction that is either in existence or is no longer in existence. So we're going to make it a little bit of a challenge first time out. Good deal. Now, when you say the person who speaks it is this the character or is this the actual voice behind i i want the the character and this could be a it could be a celebrity it could be a character a walt disney character um i don't think that uh i mean obviously there are some walt disney world there there are some uh, disney uh animated characters that are out there if, if this was an animated character but we don't know who the voices are so basically i'm looking for either the character or the celebrity or the figure that we see. Like, for instance, if it was a quote from the Wicked Witch of the West in, um, in the Great Movie Ride, um, that's, all, that's all we would need for an identification. Good deal. Okay. All right. So without further ado, Mr. Mike Scopa, take it away. Let's hear that quote. Okay. We need to know which park, which attraction, and who said the following line. Oh, sorry, Mr. Eisner. Mm. That's it. Nice. Alrighty. Nice. Okay. All right. So for all entries to name the quote, you have to, again, name the attraction, name the theme park, and name the character behind it. All submissions must be sent in to marathon at wdwradio.com by August 29th at midnight in order for your answer to be eligible. And all correct winners will once again be pooled together. We will draw a winner at that time. And the winner will receive Mr. Mangello. 
They're going to receive Mr. Mangello. My wife's prayers have been answered. Who wins the first prize? Wow. I totally cut him off. Well, the winner will receive both volumes one and two of the Walt Disney World trivia books signed by Lou Mangello, forward by Matt Hotchberg in volume number three. Disney World trivia t-shirt, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com trading pin and lanyard, a Jack Skellington animatronic bust just wow, in time wow. for Halloween. A certificate of dedication for mile marker number four, so be sure to uh, name your mile marker in your submissions. And finally, the grand prize, which we will still announce at a later episode, your, the winner will be entered into that grand prize drawing to take place after Lou finishes first in the 2008 <laughs> half marathon down in Walt Disney World. How does that sound? Do you mean finishes first or first finishes? At least I have to finish the race, not finish first. <laughs> yeah, you have to first finish. Right. <laughs> you could be 21st, 101st, 1,641st. Uh, it doesn't matter. So I don't care. As long as I don't get swept, that's all I care about. That's there right. Go. There you go. Well, thank you, Mr. Scopa. Did you have any, did you have any parting words for... Uh, Lou, before we go here, just final words of encouragement uh, that don't involve shamelessly plugging your site or podcast <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> well, I, I, knowing Lou as as I do, and knowing the uh, dedication he has to uh, to so many of his listeners and and a few of the uh, very important uh, causes that he he stands for, I have all the faith in the world that he'll. Uh, He'll come through, and he and I are going to be uh, celebrating at the finish line come January. Awesome deal. Well, we want to say thank you again. We definitely appreciate um, your help in this challenge. And for all those listening out there, uh, this is obviously to continue to raise money for a great cause, the Dream Team Project uh, on geomouse.com. We will donate $100 per challenge. We'll also uh, put the link up on geomouse.com, and I know that Lou has it up on uh, both of his pages and in his show notes. So... That continues to be the focus, uh, at least on my end, to help them fundraise and have fun while doing it. So, Guys, thank you both very much for, for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric, for all that you're doing. Mike, of course, thank you for all your support. I really do appreciate it, buddy. Hey, thank you for letting me be part of this, though. I really appreciate this. www.today.com. <laughs> I had to plug for you. Yay. <laughs> thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. thanks. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I, of course, want to thank Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as always. And, of course, Disney artist Jason Zucker. Go meet him, say hi, and see his work over at the Sunset Club Couture Shop over at the Disney MGM Studios. Thanks to Eric Hollister from geomouse.com for his hard work and donations with the Half Marathon Challenge. I, of course, want to thank you for listening, as well as your emails, your support, and for voting for the show. Again, both the nomination and the selection of the show and the recognition you guys have provided is really thanks solely to you. And again, I'm so sincere when I tell you how honored I am by this and that I share this with each and every one of my guests, as well as you, the listener. Be sure to stop by the WDWRadio.com website each week. Go visit our show notes page. There I'll have links, more information, and photographs about things I discussed on this week's show. You'll also find our merchandise shop there. You'll find links to previous episodes if you want to catch up on any shows you may have missed. 
If you're ready to start making your plans for Mousefest or any Disney vacation, don't forget to go and visit our friends at the Magic for Less Travel in order to get that Disney experience while you are planning your trip. Remember, they are authorized Disney vacation planners. They're graduates of the College of Disney Knowledge. They offer a daily discount checking service and lots of free goodies that you cannot get anywhere else. Most importantly, they offer you outstanding personal service, which is free to you. Visit the WDWRadio.com website for a link over to the Magic for Less Travel. On upcoming shows, I have another in our Legends of Disney Imagineering interview that I think you're really going to enjoy. It's actually going to tie in to our next installment in the Epcot Retrospective series. We have more Disney scene investigations, lots of vacation planning information, more special guests, some new segments, more contests, plenty more of your emails to get to, and so much more. Don't forget to stay tuned next week for the next in our marathon challenges. And if you are going to MouseFest, don't forget to visit the MouseFest page over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com for a list and description of all of our meets. You can also go to the show notes page for a link over there. You should also go over to the MouseFest.org website for the full schedule so you can see exactly what's coming up. MouseFest is shaping up to be bigger and better, and I really am looking forward to it this year. And speaking of MouseFest, I want you to go and check out the All About the Mouse podcast with Brian Ripper and Jonathan Dichter. I was on the show with them last week. We talked all about MouseFest talked about the event, talked about what's going on this year, as well as my events, events they're going to be planning. Uh, if, you've, if you're a first-timer or if you've been there before, you should definitely go and check that out. And also last week, I was on Mouse Guest Weekly with Eric and Dan. We did a roundtable discussion with our good friend Matt Hotchberg and one of their listeners, Thomas. We talked all about armchair imagineering for Star Wars. We talked about some of our ideas, some changes that we'd uh, maybe like to see in the future, changes that we'd hope to see in the future, maybe just some blue sky imagineering on our part. It was a lot of fun, something I think you'd really enjoy. Again, that's mouseguest.com. Check out their podcast as well as their site and their forums, all they have going on over there, including the launch of the uh, final version of the Mouse Guest site where you can register and subscribe and kind of virtually tour uh, all the parks starting with the Magic Kingdom. So again, that's allaboutthemouse.com and mouseguest.com. Of course, don't forget that I want the show to be interactive. So email me at lou at wdwradio.com. There you can send in your questions, comments, idea topics. You want to be part of the show? Send me an idea. Who knows? Maybe you can get on the air. You can also get on the air by calling the voicemail anytime at 206 202 for WDW, and by all means, please come by our fun and very friendly forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. If you like the show, reviewing us in iTunes, digging the show, and of course, spreading the word is very much appreciated. Thank you again so much for tuning in this week. Thank you for all your votes and support for the podcast awards. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you listening this week. Have a fantastic week. See ya! Hi, Lou. This is Kelly D., Disney lover on the forums. I just wanted to um, make some comments on show 27, which I absolutely loved. Um, I wanted to share with you, um, you talked about, um, excuse me, you talked about the hidden um, treasure of, of bonding with people as being a hidden treasure of Disney. And I just had to tell you that I'm still friends with a girl that I met one time at Epcot um, when I was working at Disney World. And we have stayed friends for the last five years, and um, lately it's been through MySpace. It's been really cool that, um, you know, just seeing a concert at American um, Pavilion would do something like that. Um, I immensely enjoyed hearing Mr. McGinnis' stories and was just wondering if you knew of any other stories that were on tape that um, we could listen to from any of the 
um, Legends of Disney. Um, so I'd love to hear that answer. And just wanted to congratulate you for winning the podcast award for Best Travel Show. Keep up the good work, and you've got a loyal listener here. Take care.